Morning, church. Great to be with you. Delighted the snow decided to stay away a little bit longer today. We pastors, we watch that. And uh, I actually prayed yesterday, God, if there's any way for the snow to be delayed slightly. And I don't want to claim credit entirely for that, just a little. So uh, we're, we're happy about that. Another thing I'm happy about, if, if, can you go back on the slide to the, to the slide we just had up? Are we able to do that? Because I don't know if you guys have noticed as we've been doing this Roman series that we've been using the Roman Colosseum to show and pro- show our progress. And uh, as, we, as we've moved our way up, and you'll notice starting today, we're at the top level of the Colosseum and we're beginning the last section in Romans. And I just looked at that as I was during the offering and I thought, wow, look, we're making progress. We're almost there. So in case you didn't realize what we were doing, that's the cleverness of that. Did you get that? Okay, so I'm happy to see that. I also want to greet our campuses joining us here today as we are one church opening God's word together. And indeed, it is great to be back in Romans. We've been uh, about a month or so uh, on a little, you know, family month uh, excursus, but here we are now back in Romans. And as you probably know, this uh, this past week, we had this very significant day in the, the calendar Groundhog Day. Perhaps you saw that. And uh, this is indeed one of the weirder traditions in Americana in which a furry gra- a groundhog comes out of his hole on a, on a prescribed day. And if he sees his shadow or doesn't see his shadow, it is supposedly determinative of how many more uh, weeks there is of winter, how long until uh, until spring comes. Now, the iron- irony in this, of course, is that if you're only five inches tall, it's doubtful that you see any shadow no matter what it is. But I think that this adds to the intrigue of, of Groundhog Day. You probably also are aware that uh, back in 1993, a movie came out by the title Groundhog Day and starring uh, uh, Bill Murray. Uh, he is stuck in an endless uh, cycle of Groundhog Days, and he, every day he wakes up, the alarm clock goes off, and yes again, it's Groundhog Day one more time. Here is my message in a nutshell. For a Christian, every day is Sunday, okay? Every day is Sunday. Now, I'm making a certain assumption in that uh, title and theme, and that is that most of us associate Sundays with a, a day of worship, Sundays as a day set apart for God, a day of renewal, a Sabbath, a day that I am Godward in my, in my heart and I am others-oriented in my service. Uh, now, the Bible doesn't mandate Sunday. As you know, we had Saturday night service for many, many years, etc. But I'm building on Sunday as a day associated with worshiping God. So my point today is that as Sunday is a day of worship, by the grace and the mercy of God and his work in our life, we have the incredible privilege of living every day as Sunday, every day as a day of worship. That's basically where I'm going, and this is one of the greatest privileges and joys of being a Christian. Now the reason for this uh, is celebrated in what is most certainly one of the most famous sections in Romans and two of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And let me just read these to you, 
Here is God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And if you look forward from verse 2, what you see is a series of very practical exhortations about uh, the Christian life and how to live the Christian life. If you kept going, you go to chapter 13, and it's about the, the Christian's relationship to government and the proper role of government. And if you go to chapter 14, it's about uh, Christian liberty and in love restraining my liberty for the sake of unity and the conscience of my, of my brother and so forth. So in other words, what we see here is that chapters 12 through 16, the rest of Romans, are very different than what we have spent two years so far looking at in chapters 1 through 11. They are critically linked by chapter 12, verse 1. And perhaps the most famous, therefore, in all of the Bible, I appeal to you, therefore, based on everything that I have said thus far, such and such. Therefore, okay, therefore is a word of logical conclusion. It's a word that pulls all the strings together into some kind of a uh, resolution. It is a word indeed of logical resolution. It doesn't mean that he's almost done. You know, when the pastor says, and in conclusion, everyone goes, yes, and then he goes on for 20 more minutes. <laughs> and similarly, just because we see a therefore here in chapter 12, verse 1, doesn't mean that he's almost done, as five more chapters will attribute. But what it does mean is that he is changing direction. And we see in Romans that Romans 1 through 11 is essentially about doctrine, deep and wonderful teaching and explanation of the gospel, and specifically how a holy God makes sinners righteous, and these wonderful truths of, of justification and union with Christ, very doctrinal in orientation. And then you get to chapters 12 through 16. Uh, which are still doctrinal, but they are practically so. 1 through 11, how does God make sinners righteous? 12 through 16, so what does this mean for our lives? Now, if you've read Paul's other letters, and I would encourage you to do so, you know that this is normally the way that he writes his letters. You can go to 1 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, make your pick, except for Galatians and Philemon, all of Paul's letters essentially follow this same paradigm, doctrine, application of doctrine. And here in Romans, we've had uh, uh, the gospel explained, and now we have the gospel applied. Now, I would say also that here at Bethel Church, this should sound vaguely familiar to you, because if you come here for any amount of time, you know that most of my messages and the others that teach here Follow that basic same pattern. Here is what the Bible says. This is what it means. Now this is how we apply it to our, to our lives. Exposition of the text, application of the truth. Now I remember some years ago, I had uh, somebody in our church who I honestly don't remember who it was, so if this was you, you're off the hook, okay? But I had somebody in the church 
They came to me and they want, you know, they wanted to talk to me about my messages and they wanted to do a little course correction with my messages and what they said to me is they said, hey, you know, don't spend so much time in all the verses. You need to go, just skip that and go right to the application. That's the good stuff anyway. Now, why is that not a good idea? And why did the Holy Spirit apparently not think that was a good idea when he inspired Paul to write Romans and all the rest? Why didn't Paul just skip chapters 1 through 11 and just begin right here in chapter 12, verse 1, where we are today? Well, this is in, this is in a broader area known as, this is what the scholars call it, ethics. Ethics. Ethics is the study of moral principles that guide everyday life. The categories of thinking, the moral and spiritual guardrails that direct the decisions of our lives. Ethics is the realm in which we live our lives. And in Romans, we find that ethics is everything from paying your taxes to restraining your Christian liberty to doing good to your enemy in spite of how they treat you. In other words, kind of day-to-day stuff, the way that we live our life. Now think with me then about what this person was urging me to do. What happens when the church does ethics without doctrine? Does living life without biblical truth? Well, ethics then and sermons become practical suggestions for living. Sermons become kind of like the chicken soup for the soul kind of messages where we give good little principles for how you can live your life and prosper in your home, in your family, in your whatever. It's just, these are good ideas. You might want to try these out. It might help the quality of your life. And there is tons of preaching and teaching that is essentially that, most of it on television, okay? And why do people, why, why do preachers do that? They do that because people like it. Oh, be, Pastor, put the cookies on the bottom shelf for us. We, we need to have it in a place that we can understand it. Just, just skip the Bible stuff and let's just talk about the application. Or they'll talk about a pastor. Oh, Pastor so-and-so, his messages are so practical. You realize that is not necessarily a compliment in the categories, in my opinion, that God cares about, Okay. Similarly, what if the diet of the church is deeply doctrinal without any application? What if Romans was just 1 through 11, bada boom, bada bing, have a nice day. Now you understand how God makes people righteous. We'd walk out the door going like, how do I apply this, right? We would be very heady, right? We'd have a lot of information and understanding, but it wouldn't affect our hearts and it wouldn't shape our lives. And So we don't want that. No, the most helpful diet of teaching for God's people is neither doctrine with no application or application with no doctrine. It must be both deeply doctrinal and applicable. And now here's the good news. All doctrine is practical. People sometimes confuse that. There isn't a doctrinal truth in the Bible that doesn't have practical implications for life. It's all practical. It is always relevant to life. And the calling of the pastor, the elder, the preacher is to sufficiently teach the doctrine, make it as clear and as deep and as wonderful and as, as, as luscious as possible so that God's people understand the truth 
and then bridge the gap, put the cookies on the bottom shelf and say, all right, now this is what it means on Monday and this is what it means on Thursday. And we see that basic paradigm here in Romans. And here we have Paul's example now of moving from the explanation of the truth to the application of the truth. And he introduces it with, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So here is the the apostle saying, okay, now this is what it means in life. By the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. This is Paul's summary of everything that he has done in the richest 11 chapters in all of the Bible. He summarizes all of that. What is the that? How God makes sinners righteous. He summarizes it with one word. Now, if I could ask you, if you didn't sort of have the cheat sheet now in front of you, if I said, hey, what one word would you pick to summarize two years of teaching that we've been doing? What have you learned in Romans? What is Romans 1 through 11 all about? Now you say, well, I, I can't remember. We haven't done it since December. We might need a little primer, or as some people correct me later, primer, on what is Romans 1 through 11 all about. Well, I'm glad that you asked, because I'm going to give you a primer primer to remind us of what Romans 1 through 11 was teaching us. And if you remember, I've said it tons of times, Paul doesn't begin with the love of God. He doesn't begin with the grace of God. He begins with the wrath of God. The wrath of God against sin and sinners. The unrighteousness, the wickedness of mankind. We all fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And yet God purposed in his mercy and in his grace to make the unrighteous righteous, to make the sinners have right standing before him again. And how did he do that? This wonderful truth of justification where God declares the sinner righteous based upon the atoning work of Jesus dying in our place, dying for our guilt, dying for our sins, and now making a way for God's wrath to be satisfied, propitiation, and this to come to us by faith. It is no merit of our own. We couldn't earn it. Even Abraham, chapter 4, wasn't a great enough, good enough man to earn right favor with God. He had to be justified by faith. And, and if Abraham had to be justified by faith, then how about normal people like you and me? And the fruit of that, Romans 5, is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this grace that God has given to us is not license to sin, chapter 6. It is the wonderful freedom from the bondage of sin. We are free by the grace of God not to sin anymore. Not completely, Romans 7, because we always struggle and we never quite get there. Romans 8, but it is yet God's sovereign love to us. Romans 9, it is God's sovereign grace to us. Romans 10 through 11, even Israel, rebellious Israel, God still has a plan for Israel, even as he opens the door to all humanity because anybody who believes and trusts in Jesus will be saved. So you get to the end of that, and I say, okay, one word. What's the word you pick? Well, here's the word the apostle picked. Mercy, the mercy of God. Although technically plural, the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, based on the breathtaking mercies of God to us through the gospel to make us righteous 
what? Okay, action step, application. What do we do about this? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, you might not have seen that one coming. Because what Paul does now is, immediately in his application, he reaches back into the Old Testament, back into the Old Covenant, and the old Levitical system that Jesus' death set aside, but he reaches back into that now to say, this is what it means for us. And the center of worship in the Old Testament was the temple, and the center of Jewish temple was that altar. And you may be familiar with this in the Old Testament. If not, you can read Exodus, Leviticus, read Hebrews, describing how that altar was the place that God prescribed for the Israelites to come with their offerings. And there were many different kinds of offerings, but primarily the burnt offering, what was known as a burnt offering, which was a sin offering, where I would come and I would offer, if I was a Jew in the Old Testament, and and I, I came to the temple to worship, I would bring a lamb without blemish, and I would approach that worship space, and I would present to the Levite or the priest, this is now my offering. And they would take that animal, and they would kill it. And they would place it on an altar. We have a little uh, visual here to give you a a sense of what that looked like. And there on that altar, the priest would offer it as as an offering to God and would light it on fire and it would burn. It was known as a burnt offering. And then it was disposed according to very strict rules. And to realize that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, Over and over and over and over, thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of times, this offering was done. And we know from the book of Hebrews that God was creating a kind of of pre-picture, a kind of parable of the coming death of Jesus that without the the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It was all setting us up to see something. When Jesus hung on that cross, the once for all sacrifice for sin, these animals were sacrifices. Jesus was the sacrifice. And now Paul here says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. You can read through the entire Old Testament, and you know what you won't see one time? A living sacrifice. There is no living sacrifice in the Old Testament. And we see here then this huge contrast between Romans 12 and where we started in Romans 1. What do I mean by that? In Romans 1, we have a description of the natural us as we come out of mommy's womb and as we grow up as sinners and how we use our bodies. Here is uh, chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Notice, to the dishonoring of their bodies, or we would say it this way, our bodies, among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
And if you keep reading Romans 1, there's a long list of the kind of prevalent sins that we have in society and that we have in our homes that are all sort of the outward expression of this basic worship issue that we have where we're not worshiping God. We are worshiping created things. We are worshiping ourselves. All of it rebellion. And Romans 1, it ends with this description of human society and, and us as individuals were fractured. We were made to worship God. We were made to be in communion with God. But now because of sin, we're, we're, all, we're all fractured inside. We've got desires that war against us. And we, we want things that are harmful to us. And we destroy relationships. And we don't worship God. We hate him. And, and on and on it goes, describing this kind of inner brokenness and outward sinful expression in our bodies. You know, you can hammer a nail with fine china, but the broken shards of the china are a reminder that's not what china was made for. So what do we think about when we see things around us that look like the shattered shards of our lives? In the words of C.S. Lewis, we are like ignorant children. I use this quote all the time, forgive me, but it's so perfect. We're like ignorant children happily playing in the, in the mud, in the slums, because we can't imagine what it would be like to have a holiday at the beach. He says we are far too easily pleased. In other words, the people that are, that are around us, and maybe even ourselves, often we are settling for this kind of lesser human experience, not what we were made for. We're playing in the mud, and that mud all around us, we see it from Hooters restaurant down the road, to online porn, to perhaps a recent halftime show. All of these degrade us. They, they hollow us out. They empty our lives of the kind of meaning that God made us to enjoy. And then you come to Romans 12, verse 1. It's not Romans 1, under the wrath of God. Now we're under the grace and the mercy of God. It is not our bodies being degraded. Rather, we have this celebration and indeed an appeal from Paul for us to live our lives as God made us to live. We are the fine china. <laughs> he made us for a purpose. And in salvation, what God is doing is he's putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. When you came to faith in Jesus, it was the beginning of God's work in your life to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, to restore you and me back to the way that God made us and even our bodies to be used now in the way that God intended them to be used. Isn't it a wonderful thing? Apart from the grace of God, we would just, we're lost in that kind of degrading lifestyle and mentality. But now, salvation is not just me on the inside being right with God. It is me now having this unified purpose where everything about me and my life, even my body, is now a tool in the worship of God. It's an amazing thought. And that's what Romans 12:1 is urging. I appeal to you brothers and sisters, offer yourselves to God. Now you can. Now you can. 
Again, the verse, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And again, the the word that jumps out in that is living. There were no living sacrifices in the Old Testament. If you were were to interview those animals right before, you know, the priest is like, like, so tell us right now, how do you feel about being in a sacrifice? They'd be like, you know, no, I don't want to. None of them were happy about it. And certainly none of them were willing. In fact, did you know in the Bible there's only one willing sacrifice ever made to fulfill the Old Testament Levitical system? And his name was Jesus. John 10, no one takes it from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. Jesus willingly gave his life. Jesus was the first ever willing sacrifice. But even Jesus was not a living sacrifice. He was willing, he was not living. It is Jesus' dying sacrifice that allows us to be living sacrifices. Let me say that again. It is Jesus' dying sacrifice that paves the way and makes it possible for us to live our lives as living sacrifices. And here's where I think the image is so powerful. Imagine with me a moment, an altar, Christian. Get that picture of an altar, maybe the picture I had up there on the screen a moment ago. Picture an altar. And you willingly climbing those steps, climbing up on the altar, and praying to God, God, here I am today. I offer this day and everything in it, my body and everything in it, I offer it to you. Today is my day of living sacrifice. It's a powerful picture. Now, what does that look like? And here Paul helps us with what that practically looks like. Notice what he says about the living sacrifice. He calls it holy and acceptable. You see that? Holy and acceptable. Holy. Don't confuse this with justification. That applied would be known as antinomianism. We're like, hey, I'm holy. God declared me righteous, so therefore it makes no difference in my life. I can do what I want. No. Paul's arguing for the opposite of that where my expression of being a living sacrifice has moral implications for the choices that I make in my life. This is sanctification. This is not the once-for-all declaration that justification is. This is the day-by-day, hour-by-hour living of my life. All the time. What? Holy. Holy. Holiness is obedience to God's will. You say, well, how do we know what God's will is? Well, you come back for a message coming up because we're going to see that by the renewing of our mind, we're able to discern what is God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. But a summary is God's will is in God's word. So, and how often do I do this over the years? What it means is basically this, where I am looking at life this way and my heart is looking as well. I've never done that in 22 years. Right there, you're getting the first one. 
where my heart looks at the world through the grid of the Bible and I want what God wants in my life and I conform the directions of my life according to the will of God. This is Christ-likeness. We're going to hear more about that in the weeks to come. By the way, we're spending three weeks on verses one and two, just to tell you how important these verses are. Holy, holy. Don't get on the altar and say, God, I give to you today my living girlfriend and the money I stole from work and, you know, on whatever it would be. I offer all of this as, as no, that is an unholy thing. It is holiness of life that is an offering to God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. There's the other part of it. And what a wonderful truth that is. The Greek word, therefore, acceptable, it literally means this, that which brings pleasure. That which brings pleasure. Let's identify who's getting the pleasure here. Who are we pleasing here? Is it primarily me? Well, I would argue that there's more joy in obedience than there is in disobedience, but that's not the point. The point is, is that it is acceptable, it is pleasing to God. It, it has his approval. He delights in it. And again, I just want to note to you, haven't we come a long ways in Romans? Where did we start when we started in Romans? The wrath of God. There's no pleasure God has in, 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 let me say it this way. The wrath of God is the opposite of the pleasure of God, right? Anger is the difference, uh, is way different than delight. But here in Romans 12, we have been justified by God. We have peace with God. We've been adopted as his sons and daughters. And our lives, get this, can actually bring joy to God. Did you catch that? Friend, your life, the manner of your life, the priorities of your life, the way that you live your life, now as a son and daughter of God, can bring delight to the Almighty. What an incredible privilege. Here's Hebrews 13. It's kind of a prayer. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. To please him. Think of this in terms of parenting. I had a, I had a night this week. Kiralee, my six-year-old and I, we were home alone. And so we played a whole bunch of games of Uno. And when the games of Uno were done, we we're like, well, what should we do now? And I said, do you want to play ping pong? And she says, yeah. So we went down, we played ping pong. And we were done with that. We we're like, what should we do now? And, and, and uh, I said, do you want to play basketball? And she goes, yeah. And so we played whole games of horse. And the whole night was done. I said to Jennifer, I said, I had so much fun with uh, Carolee tonight. It was awesome. And it really was. I had total delight in that. Now, it might be that she picked things that I sort of, you know, enjoy, but that's kind of where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> Could I have had fun, you know, with a tea party and dolls? Yes, I suppose. <laughs> and that's where the illustration breaks down, I'm admitting it. 
but it's way better than when I see her mistreating her sister or being disrespectful to mommy. I don't take delight in those choices. But when she willingly chooses to please me as her father, I love it. Now somehow in a greater way and in a a purer, better way, Almighty God, his eye is upon the sparrow, and you need to know he's watching you. Not watching you now as judge, but as father. And not looking at you now under the wrath of God, but seeing you as an object of his eternal love. And we, as his children, have the opportunity to live our lives indeed as an act of worship, knowing that as I choose directions in my life, make moral choices, treat people, give, serve, that God is in heaven delighting in it. Our choices are not merely an obedience so that I am conforming to what God wants. No, it is relationship, it is joy, it is love. After all, this is the same God, if you remember, when Jesus was baptized, thundered from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Think of this. We have the opportunity now, like Jesus in his baptism, we have the opportunity now to bring pleasure to Almighty God, to not just be accepted, but to be delighted in. So this verse provides the guardrails for for life, for us to look in the mirror and to honestly ask, what in my life is not holy and what in my life is not pleasing to God? As I talk like that, is there something or things coming to your mind that if you were honest, you and God know he's not pleased with it? As a Christian, we have the opportunity, and by the Holy Spirit and through union with Christ, to overcome these areas of moral failure and disappointment and to live lives that please the Lord. In fact, I think those that question in particular kind of clears the fog away. Like if right now you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know if this is pleasing, or if, if I should do this or not. Ask this question, would God be pleased with it? Would God delight in it? And if you're like, mm, no. It helps us understand what God would have us to do. So again, to ask the question, what are you thinking about right now? Is this something that Here in this place of worship, you might crawl up on that altar and just release it to God. Give it up to him. Die to it. And ask God to help your life to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Here's the last phrase. Which is 
your spiritual worship. Some translations go with reasonable worship. That Greek word there, it, it means a lot. We get the word logic. It's logic, Spock. It's logic. What do we mean by that? Well, A plus B equals C. There is that sense in this. In light of God's mercy, go out and just sin royally. No, that's, that's illogical, Spock. In light of God's grace and mercy to you, just keep living in that Romans 1 sin. No, 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 no. That is illogical. That is unreasonable. In light of God's mercy, daily place your life on the altar. And by striving to obey and please God, offer it as reasonable or spiritual worship. And I just think this is where this verse captures in one verse this key truth of the Christian life, and that is that we have to integrate our faith into every aspect of life. Some people live this sort of disjointed thing where they're one way on Sunday and they're another totally different person, you know, Monday through Saturday, and they, but they're okay with it. Why? Because I, I get it right on Sunday and I don't Monday through Friday, Saturday, but it doesn't matter as long as I get it right on Sunday. No. The Christian life is an all-encompassing, sucking into every aspect of our being, shaping, changing, transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And that integration of the gospel and my faith into my vocation, into my recreation, into my, uh, my, my money, into, my, into my, uh, my, my schooling and my education, into the way that I serve in the church, and my, all of these things is the goal of the Christian life. And to that end, I title this message, if you get what he's saying here, every day is Sunday. Now, I don't know if you guys like Sundays or not. I suspect you like them a little more than pastors do. Although we like Sundays, but you, you just get your coffee and, and you go home and whatever. But, uh, you know, it's a different experience to be, to be a pastor. But we all love Sundays. If you're a Christian... To get to worship, gather with God's people, this is and ought to be a high point for us in, in the week. It's a day of worship. It's a day of Sabbath. It's a day of renewal. It's, it's supposed to be. But what about Mondays? And what about Thursdays? And what about Friday nights? Is Sunday sacred? Everything else goes to pot. It's all secular. Romans 12.1 urges us tomorrow morning to crawl back up on the altar. And it's not comfortable. It, you know, you'll never see an altar with like cushions and, you know, uh, um, spritzer tea to sip on and a fan. And, you know, altars are, they're, they're uncomfortable, right, on an altar. They're not made... They're not made for us. To crawl up on that altar tomorrow morning in your mind, even bring that visual to your mind and say, God, in view of your mercy and grace in my life, I am offering today all that I am to you. I offer it 
as an act of sacrifice and an act of worship. Whether I eat or drink today, I want to do it to the glory of God. I want my aim to be to please you today. Because here's the reality. I don't wake up on Monday mornings on the altar. I I wake up on an altar, but it's not an altar to God. It's an altar to me. In a way, all our bedrooms have two altars on them. Our beds are, are the, I'm digressing now. Uh, but you get the point that we wake up and it's not like, what to God be the glory, great things he has. No, it's like, oh man, it's another day and it's just me. Not one amen on that point. Nobody can relate to that. <laughs> I've had enough early morning meetings with many of you to know that you wake up on the same altar. And this is why the Christian life, it's not about walking an aisle as much as it is the walk to the shower. To be a Christian is not like this, bada boom, bada bing, whoop, you're going to heaven. Don't even worry about it. Just believe in Jesus and then to heaven you go. No, there's this whole life thing. And in this life, it's in a sense, don't take this the wrong way, but we got to get saved every morning. Don't take that the wrong way. And I'll cue Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, amen, amen. But in terms of my sanctification and my daily walk, it is an everyday sort of kind of faith, commitment, love, God, here I am again. It's the walk to the shower. It's the walk to the office or the school. And in that walk, to be consecrating myself again, I am a follower of Jesus. And this day at school, I want to please you. Because as D.O. Moody pointed out, when it comes to living sacrifices, the problem is they tend to crawl off the altar. The dead ones never did. You kill that animal, you put it up there, it stayed. It's like the burgers on your grill. You know, they're never jumping off. But a living sacrifice, we squirm and we, you know, it's like a a two-month-old on the changing table. We tend to get off that altar. And perhaps you came to church today off the altar no longer a living sacrifice. Perhaps bring that image to your mind as you pray tomorrow morning. Today, God, I'm on the altar. My life, my job, my relationships, I place before you as my offering. And when we do that, it makes Mondays sacred too. It allows Mondays to be a day of worship. Indeed, every day is Sunday. And that includes the joys and sorrows, the wins, the losses, the successes, the failures that every day of our lives always include. But all of it is part and parcel of my life lived as an offering to God. I appeal to you, therefore, Bethel Church, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy 
and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Amen.